And I want to invite you as you're taking your seats to open up the Bible that you brought with you or the Bible that's there in the pew to Obadiah. Obadiah is on page 644 in the pew Bible. And as you're getting there, let me give you a little bit of an introduction. The word of the Lord given through the prophet Obadiah may only amount to 21 verses. But I think we've seen already that this little book packs quite a wallop. Obadiah's indictment of the people of Edom leads us to soberly reflect upon what we as nations, as individuals, even as churches, build our security and identity around. But Obadiah's words to Edom also cause us to reflect on how what we build impacts our compassion and our engagement of others. For those of you who have not been able to be with us during this sermon series, let me give you a little background on where we've been. Edom was a small country, advantageously located during the ebb and flow of ancient empires in the high mountain plateau to the south of the Dead Sea. Being off the beaten track, access to their territory was limited. You had to go through narrow canyons or mountain passes, which were easily defended from unwanted guests. Edom's neighbor Israel, on the other hand, sat vulnerable across the main trade routes between Asia, Asia Minor, and Egypt. And to give you some context about when this book has been written, the northern kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Israel is split, the northern kingdom of Israel was long since destroyed by the Assyrians. And now the end appears to be near for the southern kingdom known as Judah. Despite having withstood the previous world empire, the Assyrians, Jerusalem after a two-year siege is ready to fall into the hands of the Babylonians. As the city was conquered and then destroyed, the Babylonians, in fact, led away all of the people of the ruling, the merchant, and the skilled class as slaves to serve their empire. And through all of this, Obadiah asserts, Edom remained prideful in her fortresses and alliances and thus indifferent to the suffering of Judah. The Edomites did not come to the aid of their neighbor. Some, in fact, even seemed to gloat and rejoice about it. Even worse, even though the Babylonians didn't leave much behind, the Edomites came and plundered what was left. They profited from the suffering of their brother, even to the point of refusing refuge and selling out the remaining survivors from the city. That's where we've been. With the charges having been presented today, Obadiah now presents the verdict and the rationale behind it. If you have those Bibles open, I want to caution you. We're only going to look at two verses, so it's going to go by really quick. Blink, and you might miss it. But I believe in these two verses that we're about to read, we are going to confront a tension in the Bible, not just in Obadiah, but in all of Scripture, that we probably haven't wrestled with. But we need to. So if you have those Bibles open, join me in reading verses 15 and 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Obadiah writes, The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done unto you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So let me give you some context, again, to these verses in this book, in this time frame of the Bible. In the aftermath of Jerusalem having been conquered by the Babylonians, 
in the long and disturbing shadow of Edom's aloofness that turned to gloating, which eventually led to the looting and exploitation of their neighbor Judah. Verse 16, and I pointed to this verse last week. Verse 16, God sort of tells us the grand finale of this disturbing picture. In the aftermath of all of this, the Edomites had gone to the mountain overlooking Jerusalem and kicked back a few cold ones. They got drunk. They got drunk while a nation fell, a city burned, and a people moaned in despair. And on account of all this, we see in these verses that Lord promises, the Lord promises that Edom is going to get its just desserts. Obadiah, in fact, if you have those Bibles still open, speaks of the coming of the day of the Lord. I don't know if you've come across that phrase before, but it's quite prevalent in the prophets in particular. The day of the Lord, Yom Yahweh in Hebrew. It's a repeated theme. And generally speaking, to give you some understanding of this, this phrase, the day of the Lord is a time of ultimate reckoning by God. When the Lord, and later in the New Testament it becomes revealed as Christ, Christ will return to judge all sin. The day of the Lord is a time of deliverance and salvation, a time of judgment and vindication. And it's inaugurated by this decisive and final work of God directly and decisively entering into human history once and for all. To be clear, the day of the Lord is not just the continuation of the existing world order. It is more than a significant improvement or upgrade over present conditions. The day of the Lord means the end of the world as we know it. It is about a new order, the best of what has been, but also a radically different reality than anything previously experienced or expected. When it comes to Christ's return, we are told when the, day, when the day of the Lord is spoke of in the New Testament, when it comes to Christ's return, there will be no secrets. Do you remember in the gospel, the secrecy about Jesus, who Jesus is? There will be no questions. Are you the one? There will be no doubts about his identity, his authority, or his purpose. And notice, and this is significant to the day of the Lord, that Obadiah here does not restrict this time of accounting to just the people of Edom. On the day of the Lord, all nations will be called to account. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess as the New Testament parallels. Jesus is Lord and Savior. As Paul anticipates in his second letter to the Corinthians, we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And as we hear in Obadiah, God's judgment will come by way of retribution. As we have done to others, so it will be done unto us. Now that might strike us as startling. It might even seem harsh to us, more old school God than New Testament Jesus. But as we hear this phrase, and I don't know when you first heard it as we were reading it or as I repeat it now, if all of a sudden it reminds you of something, because it should. And it, it's, it's, the reminder is interesting because again, if we find this harsh, more old school, like I said, God, the New Testament Jesus, the interesting thing is Christ echoed a similar sentiment. In the Sermon on the Mount, which we studied in the fall, Jesus said, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Edom is seeing the downside of this verse through Obadiah. They're going to be judged according to what they have done 
what they are doing to Judah. But this principle is all nicknamed the golden rule, maybe that's how you know it, is also appealed to by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Galatians when Paul writes, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The golden rule, this principle, this is what I want to focus on today. And, and this is going to be a different sermon than last week. This is going to be one of those layered sermons. And so I need you to kind of trust me and I need you to stick with me. Because this is a sermon that needs to kind of be unpacked in order for us to first understand the tension and then to resolve it. And so the starting point here is I want to unpack this idea of the golden rule. This principle of measure for measure is not just seen in Obadiah. It's not just seen in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just seen in Galatians. It's all over the Bible. You can find it in Job. You can find it in Exodus. You can find it in Daniel. You can find it in the Psalms. You can find it in Proverbs. You can find it in other letters of Paul. You can find it in letters of Peter. The Bible makes it clear reaping what one sows is a fixed principle. If you will, it's like the law of gravity. The law of gravity, as we call it, always works the same way for everyone. You cannot change or deny how gravity works. It is just so. In this sense, reaping what we sow is a fact of life. Ask any farmer, right? You can't sow apple seeds and expect to reap an orange tree. The law of sowing and reaping is a fixed principle that God has built into his creation. And this application of reciprocity is universal. It goes well beyond agricultural concerns. In fact, this principle establishes the moral order and fabric of the universe that God has created. Meaning, we reap what we sow in terms of our work ethics, our health, our relationship with God, our marriage, our relationship with each other. The point the principle is each action has a predictable consequence. The kind of seed sown will determine the kind of harvest yielded. I, I cannot neglect valuing other people's work, their hard work, and yet expect others to recognize mine. I cannot sow stinginess towards some and expect to reap generosity from others. The end product of what we receive out of this life is determined by what we choose to plant in this life. Notice in Obadiah, notice in Obadiah's indictment of Edom is this implied morality. This implied morality of right and wrong, of actions and consequences. In the verses that we looked at last week, and if your Bibles are still open, you can just take a glance at them. The assumption is Edom should have known better. You should not have. You should not have the golden rule. Now, we think we understand this principle of sowing and reaping. We think we understand it, so we actually, every culture, every, uh, every, everybody has their, their, sort of their articulation of the gold, golden rule. We think we understand it, and so we just express it in other ways. Maybe you've heard or said this one before. What goes around comes around. And, and this is a, I, I picked this one in particular because part of what I have to do now is I have to delineate as I've unpacked the golden rule what the golden rule is not. Because many of us confuse the principle of reaping what we sow with karma. But this principle isn't about karma. Now, let's unpack karma. 
a common understanding, a general understanding of karma goes like this, right? If you do good, good things will happen to you. But if you do bad, bad things will happen to you. That's kind of our general understanding of karma, but what you need to understand is that is an incomplete understanding of karma. The idea of karma, as you may or may not know, is foundational to many religions, chiefly Hindu, Buddhism, but also other New Age religions. But here's the thing. Karma, properly understood, is rooted in the belief how you live your life will determine the quality of life you will have after reincarnation. If you live unselfishly, if you are kind and caring of others, you will be rewarded by being reborn into a new earthly body, into a pleasant life, probably a position of higher standing and prosperity. On the other hand, if you live a life of selfishness, if you are cruel and unjust, you will be punished by being reincarnated into a disagreeable and uncomfortable living situation. You may not even come back as a human being. You might come back as a bug. Karma does not apply to the principle of reaping and sowing as it's here in the Bible because first and foremost, the Bible rejects the idea of reincarnation. The Bible is clear. We each have one life. One. And we are judged according to that one life. But let's push it further. If you truly understand karma, karma is about getting back from the universe. It's about getting back from the universe what you put out. So follow this. The universe owes or is beholden to you based on the deposits you make, based on your credit rating, as it were. But again, this doesn't work biblically because the Bible declares that everything we are and everything we have belongs to God. There is nothing we have to offer, nothing we can do that God ought not to already expect or deserve being our creator. In other words, there are no deposits we can make because we are living already on credit out of the goodness of God. And if you want to push it even further, our credit rating is bad because we consistently fail, both willfully and unconsciously, to give God his due. To give God his due both in terms of how we treat God, but don't miss this, but also in how we treat each other, in how we treat ourselves, in how we treat his creation. So if we want to take the biblical principle of reaping, of sowing and reaping, and put karma in there, then here's where we have to go, okay? So if we want to put the biblical concept, even though they don't fit together, of sowing and reaping with karma, then here's the thing. If karma's true, then we're all doomed. If karma's true, then we're all doomed. If good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, then given our dismal credit rating, our moral bankruptcy, we all deserve death. Or if you follow the reincarnation logic, to come back as bugs. If karma is true, then this fractured world we live in, our broken lives are a merry-go-round we can never get off of, and therefore we should expect nothing but the worst from God. So I hope I've helped you to see that even though we try to see some parallels, 
Karma and the biblical idea of reaping what you sow are not the same. But maybe your issue isn't this. Maybe your issue isn't confusing the golden rule with karma. Maybe our concern is how do we reconcile this kingdom principle of sowing and reaping with the gospel proclamation of grace? How do we reconcile the golden rule with grace? I mean, given God's declaration of grace, we might believe that the golden rule ought not to apply, right? If we've been saved by grace, then the heck with what, no rules, golden rule, that doesn't, that doesn't, that's not an issue anymore. But here's the thing, and it's something that the Bible proclaims, but it's also something we can see in the day and day of our lives. Here's the thing, actions have consequences. Forgiveness does not ignore the consequences. Now, and and that's, the, that's the rub. See, now we're getting at the tension, why I brought this up, why I'm pointing to this in the passage. Because if we're really honest, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, we hear grace and we want to make that jump, right? We all want to sit here and we want to say, well, we want forgiveness to wipe away the negative consequences of our damaging acts. But, here, but forgiveness is a relational issue. Forgiveness is a relational issue. Forgiveness deals with my guilt, the breach in my relationship with God. But forgiveness does not deny or somehow erase the consequence of what I've done or failed to do. The principle of reaping what we sow is acknowledging the reality of the consequences of our actions, that they have a ripple effect. As a follower of Jesus, if I mishandle my money, if I live beyond my means and I do not pay my bills, I may come to perceive that this is wrong. I may confess and repent this is wrong and ask God to forgive me. And please hear this. Forgiveness is mine in Christ. Forgiveness is mine in Christ. This bad choice will not ultimately define or condemn me. But I will still have to walk through the pain and discomfort of getting out of that financial hole of facing foreclosure, of dealing with bankruptcy. Forgiveness does not negate those consequences. If I abuse alcohol and later come to faith in Christ, later I come to hear the gospel and I embrace Jesus, this relationship through which I not only experience forgiveness, but in fact find the power to give up alcohol completely, I still have to deal with the prior consequences of my addiction. I, don't, I can't drink anymore. And the damage I've done to my liver is something I still have to deal with. Beloved, the principle of reaping what we sow affirms the truth that even though God loves us, and thank God God loves us, it doesn't mean God doesn't care about how we live. God's offer and promise of forgiveness doesn't mean that God won't discipline in fact, and we don't often put these things together, but the Bible does, forgiveness and discipline go hand in hand. God as our Father, as a good Father, allows us to face the connection between behavior and consequences because this is how we mature in our faith. This is how we grow in our dependence, our reliance upon him. But it's even bigger than just our, our personal relationship with God. Because God is not only our father, God is also our king. And as a good king, God cares about how his people live together. 
The principle of reaping what we sow reinforces that while God forgives, God hasn't given up the moral governing of this world, his creation. Forgiveness, in other words, does not deny or ignore the reality that the consequences of our actions don't just impact me, they affect others. Every human choice affects every interwoven arena of community. This is such an important thing, I'm just going to stop here, because right now we are living in a time like no other where this is perhaps the biggest, most damaging lie that we are telling ourselves as a culture. And we are doing it in all types of arenas, philosophy, politics, what have you. This idea that there are actually things that I can do that it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks, it doesn't matter how anybody else feels because it doesn't have anything to do with them and only has to do with me. We are actually have told ourselves that there are things that we can do that only affect me and don't have any consequence on anyone else. And I'm telling you, that is an out and out lie. It isn't true. The Bible says the exact opposite. The Bible says we are connected. The Bible says that my bad choices often lead to a lot of collateral damage beyond what I intend or where I am focused. Think about, for a second, Obadiah's pronouncement. Think about Obadiah's pronouncement, right? It's aimed at the nation, the people of Edom as a whole. I don't think it's hard to imagine that there may have been some, even just one person in Edom, who didn't go along for the ride. You with me? One person in Edom who didn't get along, go along for the ride of indifference, gloating, looting, exploiting, and drinking. And yet, the consequences impact all of Edom. Again, no matter what we like to tell ourselves, and we're telling ourselves this a lot, our lives are linked. They're interconnected. Like it or not, and I'll just say it right now, I don't like it. Your sin is my sin. And if you're okay with that, you're not going to like this. My sin is your sin. When you sow, I reap too. When you sow, I reap too. Again, beyond even Obadiah, let's just take one. And there's plenty of examples, but let's take another biblical example. Think of the story of David. There's so much to that story, but I want to narrow in on that, that devastating devastating experience for David when his lust overtook him and he committed adultery with Bathsheba. You know this story, right? He ended up having sex with someone who wasn't his wife and more than that, he ended up committing murder, having her husband killed in order to do it so he could get away with it. If you know this story at all, you know that David committed adultery and murder, but he was forgiven. Bible's clear, David is forgiven. But it's also clear the son of David and Bathsheba still dies. And in more than this, the nation of Israel experiences the consequences of David's misstep. Reaping what, just, not, what not just I sow, but reaping what we sow is about justice. Consequences being faced. God dealing with all the collateral damage. Balance being achieved. Wrongs being righted. The Bible's... Bible is also clear that God's purpose for us has always been, and there's so many different articulations of this, but I'm going to give you my favorite one. God's purpose for us has always been that we will practice righteousness, that we will love mercy, and we will walk humbly with him. That's God's desire for us. Beloved, to present a grace that forgives people without bringing justice for all, to present a grace 
that forgives people without changing us is to diminish the significance and power of God's grace. And that's where I want to go next. I want to blow open the doors through the lens of the Bible, the grace of God. Because the thing is, as much as we trump, triumph and trumpet grace as part of our belief, our heritage, we continue to make it too small. We don't allow ourselves to really be overwhelmed by how amazing, as we like to say, grace is. And so I want to talk about this more amazing grace. because, And this is fine, because some of you may still be asking in the midst of all that I've unlayered, where's the grace? Okay, so to perceive the grace in the midst of this reaping what we sow, we have to do something. We have to distinguish between mercy and grace. This is very, very important. And I want to tell you right from the outset that I'm going to delineate mercy and grace, but the differences are subtle but they're significant. So let's do it. Mercy, here's a definition. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. And let me be clear, there is grace in God's mercy. By God's grace, we do not face all the consequences of our sins. Thanks to God's grace, we do not face the consequence of all our sins. Think about it. If we were to, to fully reap what we sow, Paul declares that what we would have reaped, what we would have earned, what our wages are, are what? Death. By the grace of God, thanks to the cross of Christ, we experience mercy. We do not get what we deserve, the consequence of all sin, whatever it is, which is death. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. And there is grace in God's mercy. But grace is different. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Do you hear the difference? Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. And while there is grace in God's mercy, mercy alone would, would, be, would be not facing the finality of death. We just get to continue on living. But the fullness of God's grace, the fullness of the grace of God is experienced in the offer and gift of eternal life. Not just being spared from death, that's mercy, but experiencing life in communion with God. Not just remaining forgiven as we are, but being changed, transformed into who we were created to be, our best selves. And if that sounds amazing, and it does to me, Here's the thing, grace doesn't even stop there. Grace means ultimately God is sovereignly working through all our sowing and reaping. That God is sovereignly working even in the midst of our sins, working in and through it to accomplish his purposes in us and in our world to bring good out of what is not good. And that's why the Bible uses words like redemption, reconciliation, and resurrection. Think about those, the, the roots of those words. They imply a consequence that is not good, that good comes out of. Redemption, reconciliation out of brokenness, resurrection out of death. The principle of reaping 
What we sow acknowledges the consequences of our actions, but the grace of God works through those consequences to redeem, to restore, to reconcile, to resurrect, to bring life, hope, and opportunity out of wrongs in which no one could perceive goodness could come. To kind of bring this together, let me give you a biblical example. I'm going to tap into a story that we're going to come back to in a little more fullness at the end of this sermon series, but I'm going to focus on a particular part of this story right now. Do you remember the story of Isaac and his two sons, Jacob and Esau? Yeah? Getting a couple of head nods. We're good here. If you don't remember it, here's here's what you need to know. Before his sons were born, Isaac was told the blessing of Israel, the promise of Abraham, was to come through Jacob. But Esau... The dad, in his favoritism towards his firstborn son, rebelled against God and purposed to bless Esau instead. Now, if you know this story or it's starting to come back to you, you remember that Isaac ends up getting the tables turned on him as Jacob tricks him into thinking he is Esau and thereby receiving the family blessing. And I'll just say as a brief aside, there are consequences in all this family drama that we're going to talk about later, another time. But what I want you to focus on, what I want you to remember in this story, and you can look at it later in Genesis, is what happens when Isaac realizes he's been duped. When the real Esau shows up. Isaac's response to me reveals his perception of the grace of God in the midst of the consequences of his actions. The Genesis records, trembling violently, Isaac says, I blessed him, and indeed he will be blessed. I don't know if you catch this, but for, from his vantage point, Isaac thought he was doing what he wanted to do, and there are consequences of that, and yet in the midst of his rebellion, God still did what God purposed to do. In those words, Isaac is acknowledging God is God and it is his God. Even though he had fought him, even though he had rebelled against him, even though he had tried to undermine the purposes of God, God's will still persevered. Isaac, in that moment, maybe not in the fullness of how I'm presenting it, Isaac, in that moment, had the epiphany that God would use even his sin to carry out his purposes. Beloved, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's the reality and truth of grace in the midst of a world where we reap what we sow. In forgiving our sins, God has us still face the consequence of our actions. But in his grace, he works through those consequences to create new possibilities, unforeseen breakthroughs through seeming dead ends, opportunities we never could have imagined or hoped for on our own. That's the gospel. That's the resolution of the tension. So how do we live? How do we live out of the grace of the golden rule? Well, let's start by what we're not going to do, what we, we ought to be careful of. When we turn the golden rule into a kind of Christian karma, when we turn the golden rule into some kind of Christian karma, then we make do unto others about our own self-interest where I act or I don't act in a certain way for my own benefit. My behavior is tied to my self-interest, 
to the good I do or the evil I avoid doing to others because other people are likely to reciprocate by doing good or avoiding doing evil to me. Break this down more practically. I help others in the hope of getting help back. I share with others in the expectation they will, they will share with me. Now, let me be clear. This is not a bad way to live. It's not a bad way to live. But it misses the point. It, it misses the point. It doesn't capture the heart of the one who said this. Love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Love others regardless of how they treat you. Treat them the way you want to be treated, not as a reward, but as a first choice. Every choice as a reflection of your awareness of how God has treated you by blessing those who curse you, by forgiving as Christ has forgiven you, rather than judging and condemning. You see it? The truth is, the truth is the golden rule makes no sense outside the context of God's grace. The vertical relationship with God informs the golden rule. The grace we receive from God is to determine our relationship with others. And so what I ask you this morning to reflect upon, and this might be a good time to look at the Kairos card if you haven't looked at it in a while, is, beloved, what are we sowing? What are we reaping with our lives? What are we sowing? What are we reaping with our lives? Too many of us, and I say this from pastoral appointments and just side conversations, too many of us, and I'm not talking about people outside the faith, I'm talking about people in the body of Christ. Too many of us are hindered still by the burden of our sin, and, and we're hindered by the burden of our sin and against our best efforts, we can become convinced that what goes around comes around. We may profess we believe in grace, but practically we're living in fear. We become convinced that what goes around comes around, that even though we may not articulate it this way, practically we act as if karma is the only universal constant. And so I'm asking you today, not just what you say, but how you live. Are you functionally living out of a sense of karma? Are you still trying to be good in order to get good? Or are you experiencing a personal encounter with the love of Christ? Engaging the person, the living, the resurrected Christ, basking in, living out of the goodness, the grace of God. Because you, you see, the golden rule isn't so much about doing, it's about overflowing. And so I ask you again, what's overflowing in your life? We all leak. We all have things that pour out of us. What's overflowing in your life? How are we yielding and being transformed by the grace of God? The yielding is our part. The grace, transformation by grace is God's part. Beloved, I can't sow envy and gossip and expect to reap trust and security. I can't sow bitterness and judgment and expect to reap mercy and compassion. I can't sow conflict and expect to reap peace in my relationships. I can't sow hatred and expect to reap love. Our words, our actions, our lives are all seeds that will bring back some kind of fruit. 
And what God wants us to understand, what God makes crystal clear in Jesus Christ, is grace is the seed we have to sow. Grace is what the Lord wants us to reap. Grace is the seed we have to sow. Grace is what the Lord wants us to reap. We are not forgiven now and changed later. When we die or when the Lord returns, that dog won't hunt. Because the Bible repeats over and over again, our transformation, the new creation we are becoming, begins today, now. Paul writes, in fact, if you, Paul writes, when the Lord returns, what we have sown, what we have become, will be revealed, not, ch not changed. Revealed, not changed. So, beloved, once again, what's being revealed in your life? What's being revealed? A reaping of grace upon grace upon grace. Or the kind of fruit that won't last. The kind of fruit that won't endure. Like the law of gravity. The principle of sowing and reaping requires no faith for it to work. Disbelief in this principle will not neutralize the consequences of ignoring it. But... Living out of this principle, out of the grace we have been given by our Father, following the example of Jesus through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we can yield the abundant harvest of salvation, the work of the kingdom, the redemption of the lost, the restoration of the hopeless, the reconciliation of the broken, and yes, the resurrection of the dead. So beloved, together, let us walk let us walk each day in dependence upon God. Let us be conformed together to the image of Christ. Let us grow in the yield of the fruit of the Spirit of, in our lives, of love, of joy, of peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Together, let us be overwhelmed by the glory of a God who doesn't ignore but deals with the consequences of what we sow and yet, at the same time, reaps immeasurably more than all we ask for and imagine. This God who in Christ Jesus makes love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Amen.